Today's lesson comes from a sermon program titled, The Crux of the Matter. This program focuses on the central, most important issue in our lives, the cross of Christ. The Bible provides a clear focus for the Christian's life, helping to understand what to do and why. Join Bill Watkins as he opens this inspiring study. There's a word in the English language that goes all the way back to the first century. The phrase that we use is the crux of the matter. Well, the Latin word crux means cross. So when you say this is the crux of the matter, you mean that the remarks that you're making are as essential to the discussion to hand as the cross is to Christianity. And it is absolutely essential to Christianity. I want you to think for a moment that every sacrifice that you find in the Old Testament is a scarlet thread that really tells us about the upcoming cross of Christ. Those sacrifices that were made by animals were made with the idea in mind of taking care of sin, but that did not fully happen until Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. What I want to do over the next few moments is to take you back to the cross. I want you to take want to take you back to those moments where he actually speaks about the cross and experiences the cross, and maybe this will help. When you read in the New Testament, you can't go very far without talking about the cross. All the gospel accounts rush toward the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John chapter 12, verses 31 and 32, and I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men to myself. And he said, he said that concerning the death that he would die, verse 33. When you move into the book of Acts in that first gospel sermon, do you remember that Peter said, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this same Jesus whom you've crucified, both Lord and Christ. That's Acts chapter 2, verse 36. And again and again in his sermons, you're going to find the cross come up. When you move to the book of Romans in chapter 5, he says, In due season, why will we yet without strength? Christ died for the ungodly. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 9. When Paul wrote to those brethren in Corinth, he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. When he wrote to the Galatians, he says, Far be it from me that I should glory, save in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world was crucified unto me, and I unto the world. That's Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. In the book of Ephesians, Paul said that God brought both Jew and Gentile together in one body through the cross. That's Ephesians chapter 2. And then when you move into Colossians, he does the same thing. He took the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, that was contrary to us, and nailed it to the cross. This is the cross. All the way through, you find this same idea that Jesus became a little lower than the angels because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God, he should taste of death for every man. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. And then you move all the way to the last book, the book of Revelation, and you talk about the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. In all of these passages, the cross of Christ is running like a thread. So I want to bring us back to that moment. You know what happened prior to that moment, that Jesus was taken through a series of mock trials. Do you remember that? And then he was beaten. He was mocked. 
He was scourged. He was forced to travel and, and be nailed to a cross. I want us for a few moments to go back to the cross because it's here in the cross that you discover just how much it is that God loves you. Can I ask you to go with me for a few moments to the cross, not just to look at it, but can I ask you to actually be there in that moment with me? When people were crucified in the days of Jesus, it was, it was really an event for the community. People would show up. They would bring their lunches. Some of them would jeer and some of them would cheer. And there were reasons for that. Some of them would say, this is the man who killed my father. He deserves to die. Others would say, we were starving and, and this man came and stole from us. He deserves to die. And so there would be all kinds of people there. It wasn't like the way that you see executions occur today in most nations, which are very private. This was a public, very public moment. Jesus died. He was buried. And he rose again the third day. But what happened at that crucifixion is significant. So when you, for a moment with me, go to the cross in four different aspects. Can I ask you to look with me at what did Jesus feel? What did Jesus hear? What did Jesus see? And what did Jesus say? I think if we can look in these moments together, that your view of Christ and what he did will never, ever quite be the same again. So at first, let me ask you, what did Jesus feel? If you go back to the week before the crucifixion, you find Jesus spending long hours, taking long trips with the disciples back and forth to tell them the things that they needed to know just before he was going to pass away. And, and there were many things he was trying to pack into that last week. So he was really working hard to do it. They would spend long hours and into the night. And sometimes you could even see a little bit of his frustration come through when he said, do you not yet understand? There was so much they needed to know and so much that they didn't know at this point. And he was trying to get in as much as he could at the last. Have you ever had a week where you have worked almost round the clock for most of that week? You're exhausted by the end of the week. You don't want to see a newspaper. You don't want to watch the television. You don't want to get on the internet. You just want to sleep. When Jesus was crucified, that's the way he felt already before he ever got there. They took him in the garden. Remember? They took him as he was praying in the garden. Luke tells us that as he prayed, great drops of sweat, as it were of blood, were pouring down from his forehead. You know what that means? It means that Jesus was under incredible stress. So much stress that the capillaries that are there in the forehead begin to rupture. And in fact, the blood and the sweat mix together. So it looks as though you're just bleeding down your forehead. It's a, it's a medical situation that comes only under great stress. Do you remember when Jesus said, my soul is sorrowful even unto death in that moment? It just means that he was feeling so much stress it almost killed him. Jesus is feeling that before the crucifixion ever begins. They take him then from that garden and lead him back and forth across a series of mock trials. And you remember what happens in that time. You remember that they took a cat of nine tails. That's the scourge that they used on Jesus. It was, it was a short-handled whip that had nine leather thongs that came out from it. And at the end of those thongs would be tied pieces of rock or of bone or of metal. 
Eusebius records that some people who are scourged had their entrails actually exposed because of the scourging. It was a, a terrible thing. There was a movie that came out a few years ago called The Passion of the Christ, and the hardest thing to watch in that entire movie was the scourging. But I will tell you, the scourging was worse than it was in the movie. It was a terrible, terrible thing. The Jews limited the number of, the number of stripes that they could give someone when they beat them to 39, but not the Romans. A Roman soldier just had one instruction, bring him within an inch of his life, but don't kill him. And so they beat him, not just his back, but they beat him with that to the point that he almost died, beaten to the point that in fact, he was not recognizable. If you remember Isaiah chapter 52, it talked about his face being marred more than that of mortal man. You didn't recognize him after his beating took place. Now this scourging, occurred after the Jews had already blindfolded him and struck him and said, tell us who it is who strikes you. I want to tell you the Jews and the Romans were brutal with Jesus. These are things that he actually went through. Can you imagine what that's like? Then after they beat him, they put a crown of thorns on his head, a reed scepter in his hand. They put a purple robe on his back. You see, the Romans at times had a way of torturing people. After they had beaten them, they would put a mat on the back and let the blood begin to coagulate. And when it did, they would rip that off so that the pain would be more intense. In Jesus' case, it's not a mat. In Jesus' case, it's a robe. And they rip it off. They beat him with a reed on the thorns on his head. Can you feel what Jesus is feeling? And then on that back that is literally laid open, they put a cross. Now, I don't know if it's the entire cross or the cross piece. The Romans did it both ways. But in fact, it is a horrible, heavy, and not smooth piece of wood. We have crosses today that we wear around our necks. We have crosses that we put on walls, and they're generally highly finished and polished. But the cross wasn't like that at all. It was full of splinters. It was heavy. They put it on his back, and they made him carry it. Is it any wonder that on the way he stumbled and fell? Jesus was not a weakling. I, I get tired of the pictures that I see sometimes of Jesus as you see them in the, uh, in the paintings that are given. He looks like a Gandhi kind of character, kind of little, small, skinny, like he never did a hard day's work. Jesus took long walks. He was a carpenter. He was a man's man, but he was beaten within an inch of his life and he fell. Simon picked up the cross and carried it the rest of the way. When they got to the place of the skull, they would have laid that cross on the ground and then laid Jesus on the cross. And generally beginning with the left hand, a Roman soldier would put his knee right here on a person's, on a person's arm. And then he would take a crucifixion spike. A crucifixion spike is about this long. Some of you have seen them. We, can, we found them, a lot of them still in the Palestinian area. The point that went through your skin is about as dull as the end of your little finger. It's not a sharp, precise instrument. It's a dull instrument to make you hurt. He would have taken Jesus, and then he would have taken a mallet and hit that mallet, and with one or two strokes would have driven it all the way through the hand and into the wood. Then they would stretch out the right arm, and then they would do the same thing again with that right arm. They would put the knee here. They would put either through the wrist or through the hand. They would put the uh, spike and nail him there. 
Then they would move to the feet, and they did something rather unique at the feet. Most of the pictures that you're going to see of Christ crucified show one foot on top of another like this. That's not the way they crucified people. They put the feet side by side, turned the legs, bent the knees slightly, and drove the nail through the fleshy part of both feet and into the wood. Now, I'm going to talk about why they did that in just a few moments. Once they had that done, they would lift up the cross and drop it in the hole. Again, historians record that there were moments where people would rip through the nails and actually have to be taken down and nailed up again so that the crucifixion could go on. Now, once you're in that place, something unique begins to happen. If you hang by your hands, your diaphragm becomes paralyzed in a very short time. As a result of that, you begin to suffocate. The only way for you not to suffocate is to push yourself up. Remember I mentioned that the knees were bent? You push yourself up on that single nail through both your feet. And then you can breathe again. But the problem is that it feels like a million volts of electricity traveling up through your body. The pain is so intense that you cannot last very long in that position. And so when you've gotten a few breaths, then you fall down again to that place where you are hanging by your, by your hands and then your diaphragm begins to paralyze. And so you go through this horrible process of suffocation and terrible pain and suffocation and terrible pain until you cannot push yourself up anymore. When you can't push yourself up anymore, then you die. It's the reason that as you read the gospel accounts, you're going to find out that they broke the legs of the thieves. Why do they do that? Because when you can no longer push yourself up, then you suffocate and you die quickly. Jesus went through that process for hours. I want you to imagine what that must be like. I want you to remember that we're going to the cross with Jesus. Do you feel something of what he feels physically? But beyond what he feels physically, I want you to think about what he feels spiritually. The Bible says, he who knew no sin was made to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus Christ was bearing my sins. He was bearing your sins. As the only perfect person who has ever lived on the face of the earth, the only one who ever fulfilled the law of God perfectly, he was the only sacrifice that could possibly be made for my sins and for yours. Jesus Christ was dying for me. Can you imagine what Jesus felt? That he felt the separation from God? We'll talk about it in just a few moments, but you remember when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For these moments on the cross, God himself has turned his back. Do you feel what Jesus feels? Relationally, he feels betrayed. Judas has sold him out for 30 pieces of silver. I want to ask you a question. You have a price at which you would sell out the Lord Jesus? If you do, Satan will promise it to you. Now, he's not going to give it. But I will tell you that he will promise it to you. He feels betrayed. And he feels alone. The disciples who have been with him for the last three years or more, where are they? Some of them are off on the fringes of the crowd. Nobody is there to support him. Do you feel what Jesus feels? I want you to 
Hear what Jesus hears for just a few moments. What did he hear? Just following up on what we just said a moment ago, let me tell you what he did not hear. Do you remember when the disciples were in the middle of the storm on the lake and they were scared to death and Jesus said, don't be afraid, I'm here? There's nobody saying that to Jesus. I am the world's worst sick person. I don't like to be sick. I just absolutely don't like to be sick and I'm miserable. But if there's one thing that almost makes that worth it, I will tell you what it is. My wife, Beverly, will come into the bedroom and she puts a cloth, damp cloth on my head. She rubs her fingers through my hair and she says, poor baby. Oh man, does that feel good? It almost makes being sick worth it. But there's nobody saying that to Jesus. There's nobody saying, I'm here, don't worry, everything will be okay. He doesn't hear that. What does he hear? Well, he hears the religious leaders of his day saying he saved others, himself he cannot save. If you're the son of God, come down off the cross. Those are the things that he's hearing. He's calling for Elijah. Let Elijah come and save him if he wants to, if you'll have him. That's what he's hearing from the religious leaders. What's he hearing? Can I tell you that on either side of the cross, there are common thieves. And at first, both of them are cursing and railing. And one of them finally says to Jesus, listen, if you're the son of God, how about saving yourself and us? And the other thief says, would you leave him alone? He said, he's done nothing wrong. We deserve what we're getting. But the one who said, leave him alone, can't leave him alone. He says, Lord, remember me when you come in your kingdom. I've often thought that if there was one bright spot in a horribly dark day, this is it. There's one person in this crowd who still believes that Jesus has a kingdom, and he's a thief, and he's dying right next to Jesus. What is Jesus here? At the foot of the cross, he hears soldiers gambling over the only piece of clothing that he can call his own. I want you to imagine just for a moment that you're dying. Maybe you're in a hospital room and the doctor has called your family in. So your wife and your son and your daughter, they show up at that hospital room. They're standing at the foot of your bed. And the son looks at the daughter and says, I just want you to know that when dad dies, that I get the car. And the daughter says, no, you don't get the car. I get the car. I've always loved that car. It's a really nice car. I've had my eye on it ever since he got sick. I've been looking forward to getting it. I want the car. And the son says, no, 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 no. You get the dishes and the cabinet. You get all the stuff that goes along with the dining room. But I get the car. Well, they get into a big fight while you're right there. They want to know. I want this. And so finally, one of them reaches in his pocket and he says, look, I have dice here. Dad, could you scoot over for just a minute? We're going to roll this dice. If it's six and below, she gets the car. If it's seven and above, I get the car. Now, what are you going to do? If you're dying and they're doing that, what are you going to do? Well, you'd probably sit up if you had the strength and disown both of them. That's what they're doing at the foot of the cross. As Jesus is dying for the soldiers, they're gambling over his clothing. Some of the disciples are frightened and walking away. What is Jesus here? Let me tell you something that probably is one of the hardest things for him to hear. At the foot of the cross, he hears his mama crying. Have you ever heard your mama cry? When I was a little boy, we lived in Chattanooga, Tennessee. 
And every day my dad would come home from work and, and he would come into the garage. And when I heard the garage door open, I would run from wherever I was in the house right to the kitchen and meet him just as he was coming in the kitchen door from the garage. And every day when I, he came, I would run into his arms. He would pick me up. He would throw me up in the air and he would catch me on the way down. Now, my dad grew a very heavy beard by, he had a five o'clock shadow by 10 o'clock in the morning. And so he would take that beard and he would scrape my face with that and he would say, I love you. I want to tell you that was the most wonderful feeling that I'd ever had in all the world, to know that my dad loved me. There have been lots of times in my life that I would love to feel like that all over again. But there was one particular day I heard the garage door open. I rushed into the kitchen. I met my dad as he came through the door and he said, Bill, go to your room. Well, me being me, I thought maybe I had done something wrong, but I couldn't think of anything that I had done wrong or maybe at least anything that he had caught me doing wrong. So I went to my room and again, me being me, I walked to my room, turned around and came right back out again. And when I came back out again, I walked into the living room and my mama was sitting on the couch my dad was on his knees in front of her with smelling salts, and he was telling my mother, I'm sorry to have to tell you this, but your daddy just died. My mother shrieked and cried, and she said, but he wasn't ready. He wasn't a Christian. I'm never going to see my daddy again, and she cried, and she cried, and she cried, and cold chills went up my back. And I want to tell you that that vision of my mother crying gave me nightmares for years to come. My mother laughed out loud, just like she cried out loud. And I would be in the middle of a fellowship gathering of the church sometimes. She would be across the room and she would laugh out loud. And for just a second, my heart would stop because I thought my mama was crying again. Have you ever heard your mama cry? Jesus did. She was there at the foot of the cross. My son. Why are they doing this to my son? Do you hear what Jesus hears. So what did Jesus see? When you look at the text, you're going to find that it says of the scribes and Pharisees, they were wagging their heads and saying, he saved others himself, he cannot save. He saw them say, if, listen, if you can't hear us, at least you can see us. We beat you. We got you. You're done. He sees at the foot of the cross, Soldiers gambling over his clothes. He sees on either side of him thieves. He sees his disciples frightened. He sees some people who are described in the scripture as just passing by. Have you ever noticed that when there is a wreck, that there are some people who will always just slow down just so they can see the wreck? Uh, in, in the United States, we tend to call them rubberneckers. But have you ever noticed that they just slow down just to see the accident? There were people who were there who didn't care at all about Jesus, who didn't care who it was that was up on that cross. They just wanted to see. That's what Jesus is seeing. At the foot of the cross, he sees his mama crying. And then Jesus sees the sun go black. And he knows that God himself has turned his back. Do you see what Jesus sees? And by the way, do you know what Jesus was seeing when he was seeing the people who were just passing by? Do you know what he was seeing when he saw those scribes and Pharisees arrogantly wagging their heads? Do you know what he's seeing when he sees his disciples frightened, the soldiers gambling, the thieves cursing? Do you know what he sees when he sees his mama? 
He sees the people he is dying to save. That's what Jesus is seeing. If that's the case then, what did Jesus say? We've seen how he felt. We've seen what he hears. We've seen what he sees. So what did Jesus say? Well, if it were me, I think I know what I would have said, and it has nothing to do with what Jesus said. I think I would have really preached a sermon that would have been a hellfire and brimstone sermon right at that moment. I would have scorched some of those people to the ground. The first time that the scribes and Pharisees said, if you're the son of God, come down off the cross, I would have done it. I would have just teleported myself down right in front of that Pharisee, and I would have said, you think you know what's going on? I'm dying for your sins. I'm telling you, you don't get it. And that's what I'm going to do. And I'd have rained down lightning from heaven. There would have been a hole where that Pharisee used to be standing. And I would have said to the rest of them, I'm dying for you. And I don't want to hear another word because I can come down off this cross again. Do you understand me? I can come down off this cross again. I can do whatever I want to. That's what I would have done. But you know, that's not what Jesus did. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. I have a mama and daddy who love me just beyond anything that I can imagine. I have a wife who loves me so much that she makes me feel special. I have children and grandchildren that think I'm a hero. But I have never been known so well and loved so much as I was on the day that Jesus looked down from the cross at me and said, Father, forgive Bill. He doesn't know what he's doing. And forgive him. And forgive her. And forgive them. They have no idea what they're doing. If I live to be a million years old, I'll never understand that kind of love. But on the other hand, I will tell you that I will thank God for every day of that million years that he loved me so much that Jesus died for me. Father, Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. To the thief that was beside him, he said, Today you'll be with me in paradise. Paradise is a word that means a beautiful garden and describes a place that the righteous go after death and before the resurrection. And he says to this thief, Today you'll be with me in paradise. He looks at his mother and he sees the disciple that he loved beside her. And he says, woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. He's taking care of his mother. I want you to think about this for a moment. He's taking care of the crowd. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He's taking care of the thief. Today you'll be with me in paradise. And he's taking care of his mama. Is there something that strikes you here? Jesus is not a victim. He is not the victim of the cross. He has chosen to be here. You couldn't kill him if he didn't choose to lay down his life. Do you remember that he says, I lay down my life and I take it up again? You can't kill Jesus if Jesus doesn't want to die. What Jesus is doing here is making a decision to die in my behalf. He's making a decision to take care of the world. And that's exactly what he's doing. He was never victimized by the cross. It was a choice that he made, difficult choice, but it was a choice that was made even before the world ever began. Remember, we looked at it a moment ago in Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. God knew, Jesus knew all along that this was where he would go.
And so he's taking care of us. The next thing that he said from that cross is, I'm thirsty. And they gave him a sponge with wine on it, and he took it. Now, if you remember when he first got on the cross, that they gave him a sponge with vinegar and gall. That's what the Bible says. And when he tasted that, he refused it. But now he's thirsty, and when they put a sponge with wine, he takes it. Now, why would he not take the one, and he will take this one? Well, there's some reasons for that. Vinegar and gall was sort of like Demerol. It was a medicine, really, that took away the edge of the pain. When Jesus realized what that was, he refused that. He didn't want the edge of the pain taken away. Now he's thirsty, and so he takes what they offer him. I'm thirsty. But I want you to listen to what he does next. This is really, really significant. Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Wow. Have you ever been praying and felt like your prayer is not getting past the ceiling? Does it seem like the heavens are brass and nobody's listening at all? If you've been a child of God for very long, or if you've just simply tried to pray for very long, you know exactly what I'm talking about. There are moments that it feels that no one is listening. If you feel like that, Jesus knows exactly how you feel. Because he's been there. That's what happened to him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then he says, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And having said that, he gave up the ghost. I love this passage because I want you to think a few minutes earlier, he has said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now he turns around and he says, into your hands I commend my spirit. What's he saying? He's saying, I can't hear you. I can't feel you. I can't see you. But I know you're there. Catch me. I'm jumping into your arms. In the days that you feel that God isn't listening, just know this, he's still there. He's still there. Whether you can feel him, see him, or hear him or not, he is still there. And when you jump in faith, he catches you. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, the Bible says he gave up the ghost. When I understand the import that he gave up the ghost, Jesus laid his life down. Do you remember we said it before? He said, I can lay my life down and I can take it up again. That's exactly what Jesus is doing. He's laying his life down. When they came to break the legs of everybody that was being crucified, they didn't break the legs of Jesus. Why? Because he was already dead. Now, if Jesus could lay down his life and take it up again, and if the payment for sin is death and all he had to do was die, why didn't Jesus just die within a few moments of having been put on that cross? Why did he stay hours on that cross when all that God demanded was death? I think there may be lots of reasons, but among them is this, that he wanted us to know how terrible sin is and how much God loves us. Sin is a horrible thing. Jesus suffered horribly for it, even though he had never sinned, so that you and I might know the great, magnificent love of God. Long, long ago in a, in a one-room schoolhouse in West Texas, there was a group of boys that had run off all the students they couldn't get anybody to come except a small, short, bald-headed, heavy-spectacled man from Boston who came. When the boys saw him, they knew that he would never last. The moment that, that uh, they put a, a snake in his desk, he was probably gone. 
But he stood up and he said, boys, this is going to be a great year. It's going to be a great year because we're going to have rules. And they laughed a little louder. He said, they're not going to be my rules. You get to make up the rules. So they went through a process of making up rules. And one of them said, well, I don't think there ought to be stealing. And all of them said, you're right. And they said, what do you do about stealing? 15 licks on a bareback with a hickory stick. And then another little boy said, I don't think there ought to be fighting. And they debated about that a lot because they love to fight. But they finally at least decided that they wouldn't fight on school property. Well, it was a great year. It went all the way through until a late hot spring day when a lunch came up missing. And a little boy was lifted up in the back of the classroom and it was under him that the remains of a lunch was found. And the lunch belonged to Big Tom. Big Tom was huge. He was the brightest mind in the fourth grade for five straight years. He was a big guy. And the teacher said, you know, the rules is 15 licks on a bareback with a hickory stick come up to the front. And the little boy ducked his head and said, please don't make me, please don't make me take off my coat. And for the first time, the teacher realized he's wearing a heavy coat and it's a hot day. And he said, son, you know the rules, 15 licks on a bareback. And the boy said, please don't make me take off my coat. The teacher went back and he ripped the coat off the boy and found out why. The boy didn't have a shirt on. You could count every rib. He was emaciated. And he said, my daddy died last year. And on the day that mama washes my shirt, I have to wear my big brother's coat. The teacher blinked a few tears out of his eyes. He said, well, times are hard, son, but rules are rules. And it's 15 licks on a bareback with a hickory stick. As they're moving to the front, Big Tom says, I'm giving him my lunch. He was hungry. He says, too late, Tom. He already stole it. He said, no, you can't do it. He said, Tom, he already stole it. When the teacher put the little boy on the desk and got ready to hit him with that hickory stick, Tom jumped off the front bench, shoved the boy out of the way, pushed the teacher back, flipped down the bib of his own overalls and said, did you say 15 licks? You give them to me. I can take it. And while the little boy sat crying in the corner of the room, Tom took the 15 licks. Long ago, in a metaphysical classroom, Jesus spoke up and said, I know they deserve to die, but spit on me, strike me, flog me, put a crown of thorns on my head, nail my hands and feet to a cross, kill me, I can take it. And he took it and took it and died. Won't you love him back? Is there anything you wouldn't do for him? Jesus said, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. Is that so hard for you? Unless you repent, you'll all likewise perish. Is that so hard in the face of what it is that Jesus wants us to do? If you confess your faults one to another and pray one for another, you can be healed, James 5, 16. Is that so hard to do? Think about what Jesus did. Don't ever move your feet from the foot of the cross.